Madden Luke's Sci-Fi Sanctuary. The year is 3013. The galaxy is scintillating in the mellow light. Two galactic pilgrims seek out vistas in the samurai future to bring forth the unity of the cosmic shaman. Opening the door of the pantheon of mystics, the evil sorcerer wizard powers the engine of science, seeking to forever alter the sacred balance, traveling on effervescent balls of summer fire. This week, Enemy of the State. In the year 1998, there wasn't a Patriot Act yet, but they were getting us ready for one. Yeah, this movie really wanted you to get get ready for that um, and and show you what it's going to be. So, today's film is... uh, Enemy of the state. There, I was doing the voice myself there, which it is like a, a prep job almost. You know, um, it's it's not quite a sci-fi, but the ideas are definitely science fiction. Uh, looking at all the the concepts of surveillance and and so forth. Uh, amusingly clunky still in this movie, which is kind of fun. But uh, yeah, not, I guess they do it more slick now, do they? It's one of those films that was that was sci-fi when it came out, and it's not sci-fi anymore. Yeah, yeah, it's now it's like it's like retro science, right? Like yeah. they have better ways to do this now, but so which makes it weirdly charming. But uh hi, this is Matt. This is Luke. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Sanctuary. Matt, please cease and desist. Only I can do the voice. Really? I, I could do the voice at seven in the morning. <laughs> I, I'm about to do the whole podcast in that voice, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, we have a returning guest today, uh, the fellow who uh, co-wrote the book National Security Cinema and gets into all sorts of interesting uh, military, industrial cinema connections on his website, Spy Culture. Hello, Tom Secker. Hi there. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, thanks. Uh, you know, last time he gave you one that where the, uh, I guess the military raid didn't get so deep in it, but this, this one's, you know, knee deep or more. So that's kind of groovy. Well, for looking at that sort of thing, it is. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Actually, we only brought you back because I need to confront you because I've actually read your book now. <laughs> um, and you made some glaring errors on the topic of Transformers. you got to Go be on. careful with Luke and his Transformers. <laughs> so, no, it's fine. Um, there's a, there, one of the lines is like, despite being a worldwide operation, we only ever see American troops. And in my head, I was listing all the times we do actually occasionally see some other troops. <laughs> but like, I, I may not have written that line. It's, it's also <laughs> like my point is incredibly pedantic because it's like in the second, second and third film, there's like two or three British troops among the Americans. And in the second films, there's two helicopters full of Jordanians, which are immediately shot down. <laughs> <laughs> Just so, like they, the just so they can be rescued by some Americans and supply them with a radio. <laughs> see, they fixed it now when we looked at Godzilla, where you just don't see the troops at all, so all you need to do is like change the dubbing. Oh, the Chinese army's here now. Yeah, yeah, because all you see is just some vague airplanes launching rockets in Godzilla, right? They could be whatever country you want them to be. <laughs> 
Because, yeah, you were like, oh, didn't the Chinese fund this? I was like, well, yeah, we just we just changed the dubbing and we're good to go. <laughs> or the subtitles or whatever. But um, with Enemy of the State, I, I guess this is the second time I watched it. I think I saw it opening night in the theater back in the day and enjoyed it and, and mostly flushed it in my brain. I, I, I mostly mixed this up with uh, Conspiracy Theory, starring our, our favorite Mel Gibson and... Um, Patrick Stewart is a villain, which came out about the same time with a you know sort of similar-ish storyline. But uh, yeah, yeah, this one does have that hard '90s thriller feel, which is is kind of fun. I haven't watched one of those for a while, so. I remember this film coming out. Like I very clearly remember the night this came out. My parents had rented the tape; they were going to watch it, and uh, me being seven or eight year old was like, "Nah, that sounds boring." And I just, you know, played my Game Boy or read my comic books or whatever instead. So I didn't it's watch not... it until I watched it last night. Okay, it's not really a seven or eight year old film, I guess. But, uh, um, unless you're just a real big Will Smith fan. I think I was quite a Will Smith fan, but no, it wasn't my kind of film. But um, <laughs> So I have had a bit of a problem, though. I watched the film last night. I then immediately went to bed. And I think I've dreamed additional scenes. I have a similar problem because I was watching it last night and I, I accidentally took a nap and did that. And then I was really confused when I finished the movie proper. So I think <laughs> the film ends and, you know, we're going to spoil it in a minute anyway. And it's like 20 odd years old. Um, the film ends. The bad guy gets shot up by the mob, right? Mm. There's not then an additional chase where he's hanging from a helicopter and the senator we think is dead emerges from the lake and drags him down. <laughs> yeah, you're going to have to do with our dream visions with this one, I guess. <laughs> I, I, I was about to write my synopsis this morning, including that scene, and then I'm like, wait, no, I don't think that happened in the film. <laughs> in my version, John Voight's like Jason Voorhees and they have to shoot him like 30 different times before he stays dead. <laughs> Well, you're working with the uh, metaphysical director's cut. Yep. <laughs> uh, Tom, you have a little more history with this uh, film. Uh, obviously, you know, researching it. Can you tell us a bit about your your trip with it? Sure, sure. I mean, I can't actually remember the first time I saw this film. It certainly wasn't when it came out. I didn't. I don't think I saw this film until maybe the mid two thousands or something. Um, like you, I rewatched it ahead of our talk today, and. I'm actually struggling to remember quite a lot of it. It's one of those films that's really, really fast-paced. You know, everything's mm. coming at you 100 miles an hour, but none of it really lands with you. None of it has any kind of resonance because it's really quite a shallow film. In, in, I mean, it's got lots of themes in it that are really interesting, but stylistically, it's a really glossy, fast-paced, shallow, superficial movie. Um and so, yeah, yeah, I, I have a little bit of confusion about whether certain stuff happened <laughs> in it or not. <laughs> Do you have some dream scenes? <laughs> um, only in as much as I've like had dreams like I'm Will Smith in the movie. Um, but no, <laughs> no entirely made up zombie John Voight scenes. <laughs> yeah. I guess that's where my, my mid-nap was like, and I'm, I've got to like reattach the movie. I'm like, oh, what? Did, what's happening? <laughs> but 
Yeah, there is a lot going on here. I don't know. Maybe it, this this movie is a bit of a CIA interrogation. You know, it's not supposed to stick in your mind. And I guess we should mention, uh, uh, you mentioned as well, that the CIA's name never actually comes up here. No, no. Well, I mean, that's the interesting thing about the movie for me is that both the CIA and the NSA, to some extent, helped make this movie. Um the producers and Will Smith, they visited CIA headquarters and got to look at a bunch of like bugging technology. There's a, a bit in the making of where Will Smith's talking about how he got to see a bug that was in a toothpick, you know, something really tiny. Um, the all, They also went on a couple of tours of NSA headquarters at Fort Meade. And they did ask if they could film officially at Fort Meade and were turned down, but then they ended up doing it anyway, because if you fly over at a sufficient height the regulations don't apply and you basically just get away with it so you do see a shot of fort mead at 10 15 minutes into the movie um and that's the real fort mead the nsa headquarters um and yeah you don't see the cia anywhere in this film and yet we see the nsa doing some very cia things like this whole thing with a black ops team this ludicrously badly trained black ops team that kind of just rampage around various cities throughout the course of this movie with no concern for secrecy or you know any of that um that's more like the sort of thing that the cia would do they'd get some ex-special forces guys ex-military guys and actually run an operation on the ground the nsa basically just spy on everything they don't actually carry out like physical black operations of this sort so it's weird the film is portraying what's effectively the cia but under an nsa cloak and at the same time it's not the nsa as such who are doing this it's this kind of like this one rogue bad apple megalomaniacal murderous idiot played by john voigt who who just sort of he starts off by murdering the senator and it all just gets worse and worse from there i mean why are they even murdering the senator by a lake in public that's this is the dumbest assassination ever is that what they do in the area? Minority Report? <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe not ever, but you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, this is a, a, a... It's supposed to be a sci-fi thriller film, right? It's more like a comedy of errors. Everyone <laughs> who does anything in this film is, you know, it, it's as thick as Nicki Minaj. It's a moronic film in a lot of ways, and I think that's one of the reasons why it doesn't stick with you very much is because none of the people are particularly intelligent. None of their intentions are especially clear and none of what they do really makes much sense. Um, <laughs> except maybe Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman at least has some kind of intelligence, but everyone else in this movie is kind of a dumbo. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I had the impression uh, knowing coming in that we don't actually hear the CIA. I, I thought that the CIA had funded this just to like shit talk the NSA to a certain <laughs> degree. <laughs> Um, there, there is that theory out there. Um, this is something we discussed on... Uh, I did a series of podcasts called The CIA in Hollywood, um, where we looked at a whole bunch of different CIA-supported movies. And that's kind of the conclusion we came to in this, is like, this is the CIA making the NSA look bad. And if you remember, um, you, you may not know this, but one of the reasons why the CIA got involved in Hollywood in the first place is because in the 90s, after the Cold War, there was actually a push to abolish the CIA. There were even senators introducing bills and, you know, draft legislation to do this. And so the C one of the reasons why they got into the movie game was to kind of uh, relaunch their reputation. So they're saying, oh, you know, it's not the CIA that are bad guys or that we might need to get rid of. Oh, no, it's the NSA. That's kind of the, the takeaway from this film. Um, and the NSA hated it, you know, um, 
when General Michael Hayden took over at the NSA a couple of years after this film came out, maybe not actually that long, um, when he saw the movie, he, he detested it and went on this whole PR offensive and invited CNN news crews in to film the NSA headquarters for the first time and tried to sort of counter the public impression that was caused by this movie. Um, so, yeah, if that's what the CIA were trying to do, it certainly worked. <laughs> it's been a while since I've seen uh, the one I'm about to mention, but is, is it the NSA also in True Lies? Ah, uh, possibly. Anyone remember that? Yeah. I, I feel uh, like that's the first time I heard the, the name, but I could be wrong on that. It's been a while. <laughs> I thought um, the True Lies actually, was just some made-up IMF kind of thing, but I could be wrong. That could be it as well. As I said, it's been a while. So I'm, I'm just thinking that's where I first heard NSA. So, But, yeah, watching this film, even though they keep saying NSA, I remember... When I saw it when it came out, and even now, yeah, it's just CIA that keeps going through my mind. So, <laughs> well, actually, uh, I mean, just since you brought it up, um, the first time the NSA were ever mentioned in popular culture, to my knowledge, was in a 1960s episode of Star Trek. Huh? Oh, would I go back in time? Is it? Uh, I can't actually remember exactly what the plot is, but there yeah, is a guy, a character that. in it who says he's in the NSA and like flashes an NSA badge, a like, totally fake one, um, yeah. on screen. Um, and that was actually before most people even knew that the NSA existed. So it's kind of curious that the producers of Star Trek would do that. I mean, rather than have him be FBI or CIA or someone else that, you know, was already public knowledge. So... Yeah, yeah. That's I. I actually didn't know that they went back that far. Um, the CIA's first film reference, I guess, it, it North by Northwest is, I guess, the the one that sticks out. But that's the first time they were mentioned, and that's partly because the CIA spent like over a decade actually removing references to them from Hollywood movies because <laughs> um, they didn't want the public to, you know, talk about them or even really know what the hell they were up to. Matt, unfortunately, in True Lies, he works for Omega Sector. That sounds like more fun anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long time since I've seen... I mean, it is a, it's a fun one, but it's been a while, right? So. Yeah, same. <laughs> um, so, Luke, why don't you go ahead and do that little plot synopsis, and we'll tell you how many of, that, of it comes from your dreams. I think I've just got the stuff that actually happens in the film in my plot synopsis, don't worry. <laughs> okay. Now I'm just curious. Like so. Tom says, it's like my synopsis has got the beginning, the end, and in the middle it's just like, and then there's a chase. <laughs> that's fair enough but what I and then the building blows up yeah. Yeah. yesterday we did Transformers 2 and I think my ending was just the goodies win rather than trying to explain the climax so <laughs> do, do what you need man Robert Dean is a labour lawyer with a silver tongue and a heart of gold. You know, a Will Smith character. Meanwhile, Tom Reynolds is a piece of shit NSA guy with a lot of blood on his hands from attempts to push a surveillance bill through Congress. 
On his way home from blackmailing a mob boss with a video made by the enigmatic Brill, Dean runs into an old college acquaintance who has evidence that will destroy Reynolds. The evidence is discreetly passed to Dean before his old buddy is creamed by a fire truck. The NSA full turn their full attention on Dean, tarnishing his reputation and hunting him down like a dog. He teams up with Brill, leads them a merry chase, and although the tape is destroyed, our heroes are able to trick Reynolds into confessing everything and then dying in a shootout with the mob. Then coming back as a zombie on a helicopter. Yep. He wasn't a zombie, he just wasn't quite dead yet. Okay. Was that the line? I'm not quite dead yet. That'd be a good John Voight line. No, but I was prepared to say in the podcast, it was a bit unrealistic how much it took to kill this 60-year-old man. (laughs) Um. We'll, we'll do the cast anyway, since we're, we're with that 60-year-old man involved. But uh, I guess we start with Will Smith. He's the marquee star, right? Mm. Um, I guess he's coasting on likability in this one. <laughs> well, yeah, the point the point in Will Smith's career when this came out, this, this feels more like a later Will Smith performance. Mm. Because he's not just... I mean, he is doing a lot of the Will Smith rice-cracking and stuff at the start. But, like, he's had an affair with his wife, he's getting angry, he's not always perfect. He is, like, playing more of a role here than he did in, like, I don't know, Men in Black or Wild Wild West or something. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely true. Um, I think he was still in the 90s, Six Degrees of Separation, whatever. He was still dabbling, I guess, in the dramatic in the 90s. But, yeah, the stuff we remember is, like, like Wild Wild West and so forth. Well, I... Remember that because I was playing downstairs yesterday. But <laughs> then again, when, when was Ali? Because that's when I remember him turning his attention to like fully. I am an actor. I'm gonna say 2003 or so. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, I remember the 2000s when I mostly remember Will Smith like really going for it. But the turn right. of the millennium, he was just abandoned. I think it's when he was still the Fresh Prince. He was actually doing a few like kind of like. Um, Smaller movie dramatic roles. Or, yeah, yeah, once yeah. we get to Ali seeing like big budget dramatic roles. So that that would be the main difference, I guess. Um, I mean, he's good I, here. And this is the kind of film where you just need a likable guy. Because, like Tom was saying, there's just events are just happening around him. You can't really follow it. So you just need a lead you can look at and be like, I hope this guy wins. Yeah. But I, I guess... Uh, yeah, the, the real star who doesn't show up until halfway through the movie is probably Gene Hackman, as as we kind of mentioned already. <laughs> yeah, he's good um, in this. I, I feel like the late 90s was like a good time for like stealth sequels. You know, The Rock is like a weird Bond movie in many ways. Right. And this one is kind of like a weird stealth sequel to The Conversation, if you've seen that one. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely is. Um, what's that other Sean Connery one with Catherine Zeta-Jones where he basically plays the same role as he plays in The Rock and he teaches uh, her how to be a cat burglar? Entrapment? Um, yeah, that's the one. There you um, go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he actually did two kind of James Bond stealth sequels in a couple of years, I think. 
Um, well, but, couldn't do the franchise no, no, uh, itself. <laughs> um, well, Pierce Brosnan has actually done the same thing in a couple of movies. He's played basically an aging James Bond. Um, so it, it, I don't think it's just Sean Connery who has struggled <laughs> to overcome <laughs> the burden of having played James Bond. Um, but yet this isn't even like a stealth sequel. T- Tony Scott is quite upfront that he, this is like uh, he basically saw the conversation and wanted to do an updated 1990s version of it. And that's partly why he cast Gene Hackman in the role where he's essentially playing the carry on character of the, you know, the same character that he was playing in the conversation. But 25, 30 years later, uh, it's very intentional. Uh, OK. Glad I'm not wrong on that then. But uh, yeah, I, I, and that's one I haven't seen since I was in university. But that, that does down, stand out as uh, that, you know, for Coppola, that's sort of his not flashy that's like just it stands on its uh filmmaking skills more than you know apocalypse now or the godfather have uh, quite a lot of bling attached but uh conversation's just a solid movie and a classic 70s conspiracy thriller i mean it was a great time for that kind of i mean (laughs) it's the best time for that kind of genre of movie um and i think the conversations are really like you say very solid film and I, i really enjoyed it when i saw it but yeah that whole sequence where they're following will smith and oh what's that what's the name of the character that he's having the affair with the one with the really breathy thank you rachel the one with the really breathy sexy voice who's just like (laughs) exuding sex throughout the whole of her her appearance in this movie um the sequence where they're in the park and they're having the conversation and he's asking about you know i need to meet brill and all of this stuff that's completely ripped off from the same sequence in the conversation but again tony scott was like quite open about this sort of yeah this is a rip-off and homage at the same time. And then I I, for, I had going through my head the whole time, um, I guess it's been a while since I've seen a movie with Gene Hackman, so I just had Robin Hitchcock's song Don't Talk to Me about Gene Hackman like playing in the back of my head the entire time. <laughs> and we got, we've got John Voigt here. So I haven't seen him in much stuff. The problem is he's... He seems like he always gets hired as, oh, here's a guy with loads of gravitas who can just gravitas his way through a role. Because, you know, he's old and he's got a grizzled face. But he's actually always quite weak in the roles I see him in. (laughs) Like, I'm thinking of this in the first Transformers film where he's meant to play this, like, powerful government important guy. But he just sort of seems to float through it with other people doing all the decision making and work he's only a midnight cowboy man (laughs) I guess in this case we're meant to think he's kind of useless but I was going to say this just just wasn't a good period in John Voight's career a few years later he did Pearl Harbor the legendary terrible Michael Bay film about Pearl Harbor where I think he even plays FDR in that film he plays (laughs) Roosevelt um and it's it's similar to this you're just sort of sitting there thinking this this guy is like you say he's supposed to be this commanding masculine leader with this jowly face that take you know you take very seriously but underneath that is this kind of weak whiny pathetic guy who um is just sort of comes across as a kind of spineless idiot yeah it's probably painfully realistic, unfortunately. But that's not what you want to see in the cinema. No. <laughs> what I do really enjoy, though, is his team of just, like, computer geeks played by, like, Jack Black and him from Buffy and 
You've got, like, Jake Busey there, just fully Buseying it. <laughs> yeah, the, the, definitely that, because uh, I think, I guess none of them were particularly well-known when this came out, um, so it, it took a few years for, for them all to get bigger roles. Yeah, that. I mean, I remember I was watching the credits and Jack Black flashed up and I was like, oh, hello. And he has a few, like, somewhat amusing lines, but he has, he's not really Jack Blacking here. He's just been hired to play a geek, basically. Yeah, I put he's a day player for this one. Although he is in a little more than a day player of his, so good for him, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's certainly not like uh, Jack Black of, say, Tropic Thunder. No. <laughs> uh, but hang on, wasn't he... Uh, uh, the other guy, he was in Austin Powers. He's Dr. Evil's uh, son. That's that was quite a big role, and I think that was a year before Enemy of the State came out. So he was, you know, okay. he was on the rise. You know, I know what you mean. He wasn't a big name yet, but he was—he was getting there. He was sort of breaking into some big Hollywood stuff, I think. So we get to his magnum opus, Malibu's Most Wanted. <laughs> and then, um, so, before we actually met uh, Gene Hackman, we meet the fake version of his character. Um, and it's Gabriel Byrne is the actor, but all I know him from is he's Satan in the film when Schwarzenegger fights Satan. <laughs> <laughs> That's End of Days, is it? Yeah, I always get yeah, End okay. of Days and the Sixth Day mixed up. It's just a different day, man. <laughs> yeah, I, I uh, only know him from The Usual Suspects. I don't think I've actually seen him in any other movie apart from this one. This go. would have been right after The Usual Suspects as well, so, yeah, you think uh, he'd be on screen a few more minutes, but hey, maybe, you know, it's kind of one of those release date things. But also, it might have just been the twist is that you're meant to think, oh, it's that guy, I guess he's the one who plays, and then a bit later you realise, oh no, he was just a plant. And then we get a bit of Jason Lee as well. I guess the thing with this movie is, like, all of the bit parts are, like, way too recognisable. Yeah. <laughs> Which... It's but, not really the movie's thought, it's, you know, that I guess a lot of them were more successful later, but... Yeah, yeah, I don't necessarily know if they were that recognisable when it came out. Yeah, this is when Jack Black was still doing, like, Jesus Christ Superstar parodies on Mr. Show, so... <laughs> I guess what they were going for was basically a bunch of recognisable faces that would get a young audience in, because you have, like, the... Will Smith for the slightly older teenagers, and maybe people in their 20s, and you've got... Some John Voight, who's supposedly a serious lead, Gene Hackman, obviously very big name. Um, so they just sort of packed the rest of the cast with anyone they could get from like, you know, let's get the MTV audience in. Let's just pick a kind of random cross section of people who have on, been on popular TV shows and hope that that will somehow get like 13 year olds to come watch this. Otherwise, I mean, how on earth are you actually going to market a film like this to teenagers? Because <laughs> it's not like most teens are out there going, yeah, I want to watch a high-tech conspiracy thriller about the government spying on me. Um, well, certainly not at that time. Maybe now, but things have changed. They got me in, but that's kind of cheating because I'd go and see like a new release every Friday night at that time. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, it got my parents to rent the tape. I can say that much. There we go. Let's see what I have. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the lady that Will Smith was cheating with, Lisa Bonet. I'm like, oh, well, I guess if he's going to cheat, there's a choice. <laughs> yep. Because <laughs> she was on, oh, God, what what was she? A different world was she in? Yeah. Although I've just realized she... the, the scene where he goes in to buy his wife the underwear. 
When I was first watching that scene, it's like, oh, this is funny and charming because, you know, he's flustered, but actually we know that he that he loves his wife and he never would. But then let you find out actually he did have an affair. So now that <laughs> scene isn't quite so innocent. Yeah. But I, I was watching this film and I actually messaged Matt, like, in America, do you really have lingerie shops where the staff just walk around in the lingerie? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and I responded with my note, Will definitely got Matrix distracted by the titty. <laughs> in the UK, even if you go into, like, an actual sex shop, the staff aren't dressed like that. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I've been in sex shops in Blackpool, and it's it's not that charming. Um, <laughs> I can certainly say that much. I've been in many of them um, summers, but they're just wearing, like, T-shirt and jeans. Yeah, it says Anne Summers on the T-shirt. That's basically how, you know, yeah. Um... And and this wasn't a particularly like high end boutique kind of. It was in a block strip mall. Strolling kind of off cheapo. the high street. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, no, that that was all very odd. I've got I've got no idea um, if there are any. I mean, there must be some lingerie shops that do that, but I hope they're paying the staff a lot of money. Um, that's fairly degrading. This I think it's fair to say. What was this film's rating? Good question. I'm going to say PG-13 without having I checked. don't think it was, because Will Smith drops a lot of F-bombs. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. And then, yeah, Jason Lee does end up, like, quite mutilated. Um, I just started the educational film podcast. I'm like, man, that's uh, that's Signal 30 uh, gore <laughs> after he gets hit by a bus. Oh, yeah, that reminds me. The um, Yesterday when we were talking about Transformers 2, something I forgot to bring up, I think that's the film that snuck the first F-bomb into a PG-13 and now you're allowed one. Oh, is it? Because okay. they, they do it subtly in Transformers 2. It's like when Sam's just been killed and there's sort of like that weird sound effect going on because everyone's freaking out and she's like, fucking do something! <laughs> but then after that, you're allowed to just quite clearly say fuck during a PG-13. And I'm sitting here checking your rating. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, it's on... an American R. Right, okay. Because I feel like it's like a lot of action movies in the 80s used to do it's like well we've got the r rating so we might as well throw some tits in because <laughs> you know I, I would have turned 17 and 96 and at, at that point you just quit caring what the rating is yeah yep. <laughs> um i think we basically made our way through the actors uh but but let me open up the floor before we we move on okay that seems like a good chance to move on then so um Wait, 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 sorry. I just realized. I do want to mention someone else involved in this film that wasn't an actor. The uh, the music, while it's never anything particularly special, it does the job. It's Harry Gregson Williams who did the Metal Gear Solid theme tune. That's up your alley, but that's cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, was, I was waiting for it to do like a really great tune, but it never really did. But it did the, the sort of bam, 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 bam stuff when they're chasing very well. <laughs> I wonder if you did Crimson Tide as well, because oh, that's an Tony Scott from the period. Is that Tony Scott? Yeah. Yep. Okay. That that also Gene Hackman. Yeah, I guess this, it is. I guess Tony Scott's a good enough director to have a crew that follows him around a bit, so that's cool. <laughs>
Um, we usually talk about, you know, sort of design and things, but I, I guess we are going to make this one just to literally quote your, your um, website, the time to talk about spy culture, as that's what this film is pretty well about. Um, <laughs> I, the, like I said at the beginning, the, the tech, I guess looking from the 2021 frame of view, yeah, the tech is like surprisingly clunky, which makes it weirdly charming in this movie. <laughs> oh, for sure. Um, I mean, that's one of the strange things about watching it now, is that when this film came out, it had this great big effect on people. People had no idea that this was kind of technologically possible. And one of the reasons for that is that this sort of surveillance tech had been kind of systematically removed from quite a lot of pop culture over the years, especially by the FBI. The FBI do not like, even now, don't like films portraying them tapping people's phones or, you know, using hacking into CCTV or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I don't think people realize just how spied on they were even at that point. So from their perspective at that moment in time, this was all a shock. But yeah, we're looking at this now thinking this actually seems rather backward and almost quaint. Um, one of the big problems is, of course, the evolution of flat screen monitors, because those old monitors took up a hell of a lot of room. And on a film set, they're kind of eyesores, you know what I mean? Because mm. now everyone is, just has massive bloody LED screens on the wall, so they just use those. But that was something that particularly stood out for me, is that they're using you know fairly low-res, gigantic, great big monitors. Um, and yeah, we're never going back to those, hopefully. From where I'm sitting, I can see nine different screens. <laughs> oh, ten if you count the little one on my microwave. Sure, why not? <laughs> oh, no, oh, oh okay. and then there's the little one for my intercom as well, eleven. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm counting four here, and I'm counting the uh, air conditioner as one of them. Although my phone is out of sight, so there's one. Um <laughs> Yeah, it's like sort of like, I guess Eagle Eye was the 10 years later sort of update of this sort of thing. And what, what would be the most recent sort of uh, big surveillance film? Well, the problem is they make them now where the guys doing the surveillance are the good guys. <laughs> mm. Yeah, obviously the Dark Knight like tried to make a moral con quandary out of it, so... <laughs> well, yeah, right now, that was a kind of, you know, war on terror, terror patriot act a little bit of protest i guess in that movie well it was the um, typical um nolan thing of implying that he's going to protest something and then never having the balls to say anything <laughs> <laughs> like well, the, the dark night like dark night rises is like oh is it going to touch on like you know occupy wall street stuff oh no it's just a trick by bane you don't have to think <laughs> you can leave the cinema thinking everything's fine <laughs> but, or, um, or you leave the cinema thinking that Occupy Wall Street are a bunch of terrorists. Or that, or that, um, or that, yeah. Um, or you just come out wanting to go burn and do the voice. <laughs> or oh. like me, you come out thinking, "I wish I hadn't gone to see that movie." <laughs> so you think Wall Street is the enemy? <laughs> <laughs> you merely adopted the Communist Manifesto. I was born in it, molded by it. <laughs> He doesn't have a good Bane impression, but he has a really fun one. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Especially in this year of masks, you gotta have your Bane impressions like ready to roll. <laughs> um, one one thing that 
I noticed, I guess the, the little surveillance thing that stood out the most to me was him breaking into his locker and then, like, having duplicates of all his shit, which, that doesn't quite seem likely. I mean, they were spying, they said he has his watch, so I, I, okay, they did it. It seems like an awful lot of work, even for a agency. <laughs> that felt very yeah. classic James Bond to me. <laughs> it like also felt thing. like blatant product placement. Oh, well... <laughs> It's an Omega watch. <laughs> and uh, what was that, a Nokia phone? I don't uh, remember. There's a, there's a fountain pen as well that gets name dropped at one point. There's quite a lot of blatant, you know, <laughs> we're going to actually write the product into the script for you. <laughs> my, my favorite scene for that ever was the uh, the Wayne's World scene, where they just uh, <laughs> said how they're not going to kowtow to the advertisers while <laughs> wearing giant um hockey jerseys and holding up and smiling with the pepsi <laughs> oh no my favorite ever bit of product placement was um it was a post-match interview at the super bowl where they're talking to tom brady and i said what are you going to do now he's like i'm going to go home and have a beer a budweiser of course <laughs> <laughs> like the long pause and he remembers that he's been told to plug budweiser <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, think my favourite bit, if I, if I can just jump in on this rather silly theme that we've got going, um, my favourite bit of product placement is in Rampage. Have you ever seen that? The oh, I, have, I still have, I need to get on that. It's actually a really fun movie. Yeah, or I, I mean, it's dumb as hell. Oh, yeah, that's what I'm hoping for. You're selling him um, on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, if you like big, dumb monster movies with The Rock, it totally delivers on that. There's a bit where one of the monsters is rampaging down a street and he rips the sign off a shop. And it's like a Dave and Buster's logo, and he throws it to the side, and it comes flying towards you on the screen. So it's like, Dave and Buster's. Um, it's really blatant, but it's like, well, okay, yeah, I mean, the monster's ripping stuff up. Might as well rip up a corporate logo and throw it at the audience, I guess. I think you just made it where Luke's going to watch this thing before going to work today. <laughs> no, but I, you're, you're adding that to the short list, Matt, for next time we're recording. We don't have a guest. <laughs> <laughs> I did like playing the game in, in arcades in the 80s. Yay. <laughs> I think I played it on my grandmother's master system. Yeah, me too. Not on your grandmother's master system, obviously. <laughs> hey, buddy, I played it on your grandmother's oh. master system. <laughs> I also had a dream about my grandmother last night where she'd only just found out that Princess Diana died. <laughs> She, like, phoned me up, like, Luke, Luke, Princess Diana died. I'm like, yeah, I know, like, 20 years ago. She's like, what? No one told me. <laughs> Not the people's princess. <laughs> Must have been all the car accidents in this film that got you. I guess. <laughs> was this, this was uh, after she died, right? Yeah. Oh, they weren't programming 96. us for that then. No, no, no. I, there's probably a different movie for that. <laughs> no, this was, again, this one, I guess, was programming you for the Patriot Act. Well, I mean, this is two films in a row we've done where they came out just before 9-11, but feel almost like post-9-11 films. I think the only thing mm. that stops this one feeling post-9-11 is that we're not meant to support this act. Whereas everything made after 9-11, you're 24s and stuff. These guys are the heroes. Well, I mean, even before 9-11, I would say for, for well, probably the CIA, you know, that, that something like that's a wet dream, right? So oh, yeah. why wouldn't it come out at this point in time? <laughs> um, but Just what, saying. the only thing that makes it super weird, 
Um, did you notice the scene where they read out John Voight's character's birthday? Mm-hmm. He was born on 9-11. Yeah. Nobody was born on 9-11. Uh, I was. <laughs> no. <laughs> Let me get you to tell this where you got your new Pokemon game and nobody wanted to play it with you again. Oh, I, Digimon, no, but Digimon. yeah. <laughs> oh, Digimon, excuse me. <laughs> so, this is exactly what I was talking about, the Transformers thing. That wasn't necessary to connect, correct you on that. That was just me being pedantic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but obviously I'm, I'm not a big believer in the freaking... Um, programming and it was all planned and blah 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 but the more I watch stuff from around this time it feels like not 9-11 specifically but a big event which gave them an excuse to do awful shit was inevitable right it's a never let a good crisis go to waste when, yeah you know? like it's like every <laughs> every agency in America was just waiting for a 9-11 to happen not the 9-11 it, but a 9-11 yeah, it's like, here is what we would like to do when something happens that we can get away with it. We'll get to that. <laughs> yeah. And if, if that hadn't happened, it would have been a smaller terrorist incident. They would have That would have been the one they latched onto instead. Well, we or not necessarily a terrorist incident. It could be, you know, industrial sabotage on a big scale. It could have been, you know, I mean, they would have settled for a comet at that point in time. Oh, true. Anything <laughs> that, that allowed them to do what they wanted to do. Um, but yeah, yeah, there's loads of 90s movies that um, have that feel to them, either explicitly in their themes, like in this one, um, or just more generally, like uh, you could say Independence Day is kind of a 9-11 movie in a lot of ways. Um, it certainly has an awful lot of people kind of staring up at skyscrapers with their mouths aghast. Um, so if you want to get really into weird predictive stuff, I did toy with the theory that Gene Hackman's character in this film is basically Edward Snowden. Hmm. He is called Edward, after all. He is ex-NSA, he is on the run, he is doing a lot of sort of very Snowden-y things. Um, and he is from Baltimore, and so is Snowden. So, I'm not saying any... I mean, who the hell knew... At that point in time, when this film was being written, Snowden was a teenager. Right. So, well say he was playing Digimon. <laughs> Um, I'm certainly not advocating this as like a the scriptwriter knew or something, but in terms of like weird stuff that this movie preempted or predicted, there is that whole well, angle to it as well. Is it such a weird prediction to say this shit is so fucked that someone is eventually going to turn against it? <laughs> there we I go. meant more in the specific details. Right? No, no, surely, surely not that <laughs> element of the story. No. <laughs> Um, we talked like kind of the clunky tech here. Uh, what what do you guys see as sort of the uh, more prescient things, the things that we were seeing for the first time around 1998? I guess the computer modeling that let them like figure out what happened in the bag. Because even today, that's a little far fetched. But we are getting to the point where yeah, algorithms and like he says like, oh, can the computer figure it out? And he's like, well, the computer can make assumptions. But that is what we're relying on more and more is like the algorithms do the thinking for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that one did stick out to me as being it's still a touch more sci-fi, I guess, as opposed to the other stuff that's you know a little backwards now, right? Yeah, <laughs> like the like the monitors. I think seen? the big one for me was probably the satellites, all of that top-down satellite or fake satellite imagery that they put together. Because I mean, these days everything is shot with drones, mm. so we get loads and loads of aerial photography. There's far more aerial photography in culture these days than there was back then. 
But I can't remember a movie prior to this where you have, like, fakes mocked up satellite imagery. I just, I mean, it just wasn't really on the agenda. People didn't really talk about it. I and mean, still don't, to be honest. Um, but there's an awful lot of satellites up there. You know, all of those times when you read about in the news about a communications satellite being launched, I'm guessing at least half of those are just spy satellites of hmm. one, one country or another, because they're all just launching them up there and spying on everything, on you know, every inch of the Earth to try and... I don't even know what they're trying to do. To and now they got Elon Musk's uh, satellites floating between them all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, yeah they're all going to start crashing into each other sooner or later. This is going to be spectacular. I can't believe this is the third Digimon mention of the episode, but... Um... <laughs> The current the current series that's running in Japan at the moment, that is one of the plots, is the Digimon are taking over all the satellites and they're going to crash them together and make one big comet to destroy Tokyo. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> oh, one more um, one more thing that I just asked, let's, let's see what was, was up to date, but one more highly entertainingly um, out of date bit in this movie. Check his porno rentals. Yeah, <laughs> I, I guess will help. You know, uh, Japan has the um, deep countryside um, self-serve porno stands. That's kind of fun, and I don't mean self-serve to be dirty. I just mean no one's staffing the place. Well, the um, the gym that I go to it has like a a club attached to it, which is basically just a place for married men to go so they don't have to go home. It's just like a whole bunch of comic books and some TVs and stuff. But it's got, like, private rooms, which it's very clear what they're designed for. And in the bathroom, there's big posters advertising porno channels. <laughs> like, anyway, if I was going to watch porn here, I wouldn't watch the stuff that I can buy through your service, because it's going to blur all the good bits. The point being, I feel like in the West, uh, you, you know, you would just download any of that stuff. You certainly wouldn't be renting it anymore. But, but in Japan, there there are some OGs on there perfectly happy to go rent that stuff. Have I told my story yet on this podcast from when I first got here and I was staying in that capsule hotel? I'm not sure if you have on the podcast, but it's been a few episodes if you want to go for it. Right, so I'd, I've only been in Japan like two weeks. I'm staying in Tokyo. It's a capsule hotel, so it's only for, basically for businessmen. And you get, like, essentially a coffin to sleep in. But, you know, I'm spending all day out and about exploring the city anyway, so it doesn't bother me. But one morning, I'm sat eating my breakfast, and I hear a woman's voice. Oh, that's strange. Just, I thought this was a male-only, like, establishment. I look around, I can't see anyone. And I hear her voice again, and I hear, like, moaning. I look around, and, like, someone's eating in one of the, like, private rooms... But uh, it's not eating that he's doing. I realise that he's very loudly watching porno. <laughs> and I, I look round at all the Japanese business managers looking down at their food, ignoring it. And eventually <laughs> the one other foreigner is also looking up and we sort of make awkward eye contact <laughs> and go back to our breakfast. I don't, I, I don't I, know I, if the guy thought he had headphones in, but he didn't. Or if this was just what gets him off. But he was loudly watching porno and everyone could hear. The sound's not used yet, but, I mean, I've seen on a Tokyo train, if you happen to, you know, not even, like, you're trying to look, but you just glance at someone's phone, and they're, like, just looking at some gnarly stuff on a crowded train, so that that happens. See, I get nervous if I'm looking at what is not meant to be gnarly stuff, but then I just happen to scroll past, like, you know, someone's posted their beach pics on Instagram or something. <laughs> 
Um, bringing it back, uh, the technology got the satellites. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I did definitely noticed that 3D thing being even now a little weird, a little oh. fantasyful. But. When they're on the subject of satellites, they make the point that they can only look directly down. Is there some reason satellites can't look at an angle? No, that's not actually true. I was, yeah, I was just thinking, like, <laughs> just just move it a few meters to the left. <laughs> <laughs> and then, okay, it's 20 years later, they got better satellites now anyway, probably. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they had better satellites than that in the 1960s when the CIA <laughs> were launching them, trust me. Um they had, you know, they, you could put like three different cameras on it, one going straight down, one slightly angled to the left, one to the right, so you get a greater scope for each pass of the satellite, because they were basically just using film to take pictures of the Earth's surface at that point. So if they could do that in the 1960s, they could certainly do it in the 1990s. I guess we should talk a little bit about like what what this film means today because uh it was the cutting edge techno thriller when it came out and yeah i i guess that was most of its um that was most of what it had in the fuel tank <laughs> well yeah that that and helicopters there's a lot of don't know why but they use a lot of helicopters in this movie and for some reason they don't make any noise before they appear on screen no one has a clue that they're coming they're all the t-rex so... from jurassic park <laughs> there we go yeah that we yeah we were recording yesterday outside and we could definitely hear the helicopters coming yeah through. <laughs> Do- dr heli is the one that we have around here to get people that you know decide to go up a mountain in the middle of winter and it didn't work out <laughs> well i noticed the whole film will smith's not really doing anything um illegal like he's just running away until he, he just randomly decides he's going to shoot at this helicopter with his shotgun. <laughs> like, yeah. ineffectively just fire a blast at the helicopter. Okay, there's something that does kind of tie in with today. I felt like it, he was watching his social crediting score go down really fast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and this is definitely one of the first times you would. I think we saw that sort of thing happen in a movie. Because technologically, you could probably run off. You know, in the 80s, you could probably still get off the grid without too much trouble. But by this time, it's it's becoming a little trickier. So, you know, he gets stopped at every corner with his credit card. You know, none of his IDs have worked anymore. That's sort of thing. That's why you just keep all your cash in your mattress. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's... No, I know. They, the whole arc of Will Smith in this movie is supposed to be the standard... Uh, neophyte who is drawn into this secret world that he doesn't understand and by the end of it he's changed as a person because of it but instead his kind of descent into becoming a badass when he's hanging around with Gene Hackman is sold really poorly 
it's never convincing at all that Will Smith has gone from this, like you say, he's sort of very good-hearted, or at least apparently so at the start of the movie. He never really loses that. And at the end of the movie, he's basically back where he started. He's the same person. This whole traumatic incident hasn't affected him at all, really. He's fine. Yeah, I never got Um, the impression that he was meant to be becoming a badass. He just happened to use one of his classic tricks to get out of it in the end because he took him back to the mob where the FBI were watching. But I did like at the start of the film, he was basically pro this bill that was going to give them all these surveillance rights. And his wife's telling him how awful it is, but he's just like, yeah, well, you know, the terrorists, though. (laughs) And, like, in this film, he gets convinced it's a bad idea, but ultimately the American public were pretty much of that opinion, I think. So it's like a military-industrial Christmas carol. Yeah, basically. (laughs) Tom, I want to toss it your way. Just, um, I I, I know you've, you know had a little actual research in this movie if if we're missing some uh notable angles that we should be hitting um fair question i mean there's a whole bunch of different angles you could approach this movie from i will say uh will smith's wife in this i can't remember the actress's name i really like her i've seen her in a whole bunch of stuff regina something Um, i think uh regina hall whatever anyway she's the only one in the film who has any sense Regina King, my apologies. Um, she she talks a bunch of sense at the start. She's the only one who seems to recognise the looming danger of this surveillance legislation. Um, and at, at the same time, she kind of actually is the only one who remains grounded. Everyone else gets caught up in this ludicrous, fast-paced adventure. And Gene Hackman and Will Smith spend most of the third act of the movie actually using the very technology and techniques that they are apparently opposed to. Mm. So as an advert for the surveillance state, for the whole kind of post-Patriot Act world, it's really effective because our heroes end up doing this and it's all cool. And then right at the end, you've got Will Smith sat on his sofa and Gene Hackman is somehow spying on him from an island in (laughs) Barbados or wherever the hell it is that he's run off to. And Will Smith treats this like a funny joke. Oh, it's hilarious that he somehow snuck a camera into my living room to spy on me and my family. Um, so, in as much as this film contains a few relatively token lines in opposition to this sort of a world, it is ultimately a promotion for it in a fairly unambiguous way. And again, I'm not sure if that's what Tony Scott actually set out to do. Because like I say, he thought this was going to be like an updated 70s style conspiracy thriller. But those films all make you come away feeling extremely uneasy about the security state. Whereas this film, it's like, actually, no, this is where all the excitement comes from. In this action-packed thriller, if it wasn't for the NSA, nothing had happened in this film. Well, I also Um, noticed... It'd be boring. At the end of the film, there's a line which I would definitely add to the script by someone, where um, they're saying, like, oh, Senator, does this mean that the the bill is not going to happen? He's like, well, in this form, it's not going to happen, but the question is still on the table. Like, please don't leave the cinema thinking that we don't need this surveillance. <laughs> well, and then they trot out the cliche. I think it's Larry King trots out the cliche about, oh, it, it, it's where do we draw the line? The question isn't, do we need this sort of a world? Right. It's where do we draw the line? And it's sort of, well, that's a fairly lame debate. It's, it's just an arbitrary line in the sand that we can forever argue over rather than actually tackling the the real question here which is do we need all this shit well and that's exactly how basically everything on the right wing works it's like 
we just have to keep pushing the Overton window a little bit further so that the other side mm. is saying, no, no, but you can't, you can do that, but you can't go this far. And then 10 years later, they've gone that far, but they're saying, well, of course, that's fine, but you can't go this far. I, I exactly. guess a similar question. I guess a similar question these days, because, well, they got the surveillance in, so now it's like, so how are we going to institute digital currency for everyone? So I don't think I want that. <laughs> I like having money in my pocket, uh, you know, in my mattress, as you said. <laughs> well, and I like being able to pay for things without it ending up on a database somewhere. Yep, exactly. But I, I do feel like we're getting that question. Sorry, making a fucking noise, but uh, um, that's the question that we sort of have on the table this, these days. It's like, no, I don't want that. But, you know, if you look at the media or whatever, it's always like, how are we going to institute it? Uh. We're we're safe for a while yet, Matt, because there's still plenty of places that don't even accept card here in Japan. So, well, Japan's a different creature, of yeah. course. But I, you know, even 15 years ago, last time I lived in America, it's like you never carry cash on you. So, well, and with all this COVID stuff, there's a lot of places that aren't even accepting cash right now. I found. Yep. Japan's I mean, right, right, places, rightly but... or wrongly, I'm just just observing that you know, if anything, we're just moving further and further in that direction, faster and faster. But and there's that story last year, like, oh, we're running out of coins or something. What? Twenty years from now, we're going to look back at all these things that have changed, and we're going to say, oh, well, that's what they were just waiting for some kind of pandemic or whatever the next tragedy was to introduce these changes. The same way 9/11 was just their excuse to introduce all the changes they wanted to introduce then. Well, yeah, because so many of the things going through now, they're not even particularly health-related, you know? It's just like, oh, now's the time. Yeah. Well, I mean, they do have a bunch of stuff just sat on the shelf waiting for any opportunity that comes along. Of course they Whether do. it be a real thing like an actual viral pandemic or something invented or at least, you know, semi-invented. Um, and, yeah, that's the problem with the whole security state apparatus in particular, that government in general to be honest is that they've got a whole bunch of stuff they're trying to implement and find an excuse in a moment to implement and we as a public aren't really ready to resist that because we think this is all happening organically or at least it appears at the time when you're living through it that oh this might actually be a justifiable reaction and so on whereas it's not like they plan all of this out years in advance it's just opportunistic oh let's try and try and implement this and see how well it goes down see if we can get away with it and sometimes they do sometimes they don't but without a resistance a you know some kind of more widespread protest and resistance movement against these kinds of things it will be a steady encroachment um and i don't know i can't really think of anything else that's going to stop that i'm not even sure if that would stop it that might um, delay they're it. probably just going to keep yeah, exactly. I think at this point, our best bet is to try and delay it and throw as many spanners in the works as possible. Yeah, I guess that's where this sort of film is notable. I mean, is it predictive programming? No, of course not. They got all the clunky stuff and, you know, it's not really how it went down, but it is uh, sort of just massaging the, uh, the public mindset to be ready for this sort of thing. <laughs> where they're in yeah. this movie, they're still considering, oh, is it bad? Oh, uh, it's not bad. <laughs> I'm not again. I'm not sure if that's what Tony Scott and the screenwriter actually had in mind. That was the film they ended up making mm. for various reasons. But like with Top Gun, 
Tony Scott said years later he was actually felt quite sad looking back at Top Gun and saying, oh, you know, he encouraged all these people to join the military by making this movie, and the movie is nothing like the experience they would actually have. And I do wonder if he felt the same about Enemy of the State years later, because he did, him and Ridley Scott did co-produce the movie The East. I don't know if you've seen that one. And that's all about a private surveillance company who is infiltrating this kind of anti-capitalist, eco-anarchist group of fairly serious protesters who are carrying out these really quite imaginative sabotage operations against giant like big pharma and what have you and that film is like totally on the side of the radicals it's incredibly sympathetic towards some pretty you know far left people and i do wonder whether both ridley scott and tony scott felt a bit guilty about having spent so many years kind of shilling for the military industrial hollywood relationship and wanted to at least make one film that showed sympathy for people who were very much coming from a different angle. Uh, despite having two great know. directors, I've never heard of that film, so that shows you, you know... Uh, they pro- they produced, not directed Right, it, but, but yeah. I mean, it makes sense, right? Like, that one didn't get the push that the ones that do support the military get. Oh yeah, that movie was made for like $5 million by Fox Searchlight and got a terrible distribution deal. But, it, I mean, critically, it did very well, and actually, when you look at the numbers... It was only a tiny number of theatres, but did quite well in those theatres. So I can recommend it. I really like The East. I think it's a, a great movie. Sorry, I'm, I haven't been speaking to many Brits recently. Is it The East or The Yeast? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's not a joke. I'm not sure. No, I know it's not a joke. It's just funny. <laughs> the East, as in the opposite of The West. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was thinking, like, is it some sort of, like, bread metaphor? Is Marmite involved? (laughs) (laughs) No, I do tend to hang on to my E sounds, so the yeast. Okay, okay. (laughs) You're going to watch you make your breakfast. Surveillance of your breakfast. (laughs) Matt, your... The maker is spying on you. The the QAnon people are always talking about baking, so... (laughs) Maybe it's where it came from. (laughs) <laughs> see Q just, dropped, okay. Q, Q just drops crumbs you've got to bake it into the actual conspiracy theories that's how it works you're not just joking that's a thing yeah that's the okay. thing it's, well basically it's because often he ends up being talking shit but that's how they say well no 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 Q wasn't talking shit we just baked it incorrectly maybe they needed yeast to poof out Donald Trump's hair I don't know has, has anyone conclusively proven that QAnon isn't a parrot in Ohio using, like, a voice-to-text app? No. That sounds about right. <laughs> like an actual <laughs> parrot, right? <laughs> yeah, how, how would we know the difference? <laughs> a parrot would probably make more sense. Oh no! Also, sometimes the Q drop is literally just a link to a gif of an American flag. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so it's a very patriotic parrot in Ohio using a voice to text. <laughs> Red, white, and blue feathers. Brock, HTTP, Brock, colon, forward slash, Brock, flag, dot, JPEG, Brock. That sounds right. Okay, cool. <laughs> before we put, before we, we take uh, this movie out back and, and put a bullet in, in its head, uh, any, any other themes that we want to hit? I think it's just sad that it ended up, while trying to make a point, I think it did the same thing 
The Dark Knight accidentally did, where the point it ended up making is, this stuff is bad unless the good guys use it. Mm. Which his wife even mentions at the start, right? He's like, well, I guess they'll just spy on the criminals, but who gets to choose? But <laughs> the film accidentally does kind of give you that viewpoint. Yeah, well, that's where you... According to Jerry Bruckheimer, this was actually partly as a result of their cooperation with the NSA on the film. That In the original script, and I actually went back and found a 1996 draft script of this movie um, and checked this out. Bruckheimer said it was like the NSA as a whole that were sanctioning these operations. Right, I wondered that, and, actually, instead of just being a rogue agent. Yeah, and that as part of you know their discussions when they went and visited Fort Meade, they ended up rewriting that to make it the John Voight rogue bad apple character, which is a classic you know intelligence movie ploy. Oh, no, we're not condemning the whole agency. It's just that there's a few bad people in there. Same with like police movies and stuff. Yeah. The bad guys are always the exception rather than the norm. And... I mean, okay, Bruckheimer said this in an interview. The NSA's emails on the film do discuss this article, and they don't dispute that point, that the script was rewritten. They do dispute a couple of other things in that article, but not that. And like I say, when I looked at that 96 script, he's right. As this was originally written, it was like a, you know, the agency as a whole. So that's certainly something for people to ponder on, is how a little but quite fundamental shift in the plot and in the characterization of a movie can really change the messaging of it. Because Tony Scott presumably went out, you know, with the idea of, oh, I'm going to make a, almost an anti-NSA, anti-surveillance movie, and it ends up being a relatively pro-surveillance movie. Um, like you say, the, the messaging got all mixed up somewhere in the middle of there while all the buildings were exploding and the cars were flipping over for no apparent reason. And by the end of it, you're coming away almost not caring. I mean, that's another thing that this movie does is it very much normalized this. The initial reaction of audiences was shock and surprise. But eventually it just that became the world that we lived in. And I think this movie was a step on that road. Um, that was the first time we mentioned Bruckheimer, I think, on this. And you were like, how'd they get the teens into the movie theater when this came out? Uh, that was how. Uh, Michael Bay wasn't the name we knew yet. It was like Bruckheimer. So like, you know, the rock mm. con air, like Bruckheimer films going to give you action. And now I, I just had a rem remembrance that, you know, you get that lightning credit thing. And OK, this is going to be in the 90s. That was your action film. Right. So this one might be a little more low key, obviously. But um that, that would have been the, the hook, I think, for uh, a lot of Americans at the time. Like, Bruckheimer equals action. Just to double check, sure, are we sure. still allowed to like Bruckheimer? He hasn't been caught up in I, anything too weird? I don't think we liked him in the 90s. We just liked his movies. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, you like just... Jerry Bruckheimer? <laughs> <laughs> we liked his movies. Um, no, it was, the other, it was Bruckheimer. What was the other guy that did coke out of life? He had his partner for uh, The Rock and some of the earlier films, Simpson or something. Yeah, I don't know because that was the thing. So it's like it was like, but they were like superstar producers in the '90s, basically. Which we, you know, usually it's a director, and and Michael Bay is the one you think of now in general, and and probably Tony Scott a little bit as well. But um, yeah, yeah, they, they were kind of in America, big name producers in the '90s. So. Okay, I can't actually remember a good jerry bruckheimer film <laughs> um, no no we, we went to them for the action 
<laughs> yeah, I think that's my problem with them is that they're very action focused, and I'm just not that interested in watching stuff blow up anymore. Uh, right, right. I suppose at the time when I was younger, when this film came out, I was more into that sort of movie. Um, yeah, fifteen-year-old Americans want to watch things blow up, especially in the '90s. Everything's perfect now, right? Nothing bad's ever going to happen again. It's the 90s. <laughs> yeah, so we have to go to a, mu- a bunch of destructive wish-fulfillment movies where everything just falls apart for no reason. Yeah, okay, yeah I see where you're coming from. Yeah, yeah. Please listen to the Transformers 2 podcast that we recorded yesterday. <laughs> okay, okay. I make the very opposite point of what you've just made. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm just trying to think back to my high school self, and, and you know, we did kind of... Again, I was going to see like a new release like every weekend anyway so it's like which one is this week oh this action thing so <laughs> uh, this also feels like the beginning of that um ridiculously fast-paced editing like the taken style editing mm. though i the scene yeah. i noticed in this is a scene where his wife's like shouting in his face and over the course of her saying one line you get like four different camera angles <laughs> I, I guess I think in this one they, that was like a deliberate choice, right? Because they were trying to show how they're looking through all these different cameras, and it's you know no matter how fast you go, they've always got you on a camera. I think that might have been a stylistic thing here, but now it's just what every action movie does, rather than let you look at anything. Well, that was another one of these '90s Bruckheimer things did, sort of the they really instituted the the music video editing into the uh, film, right? So. Well, and advertising editing, if you think about it, most adverts are chopped very quickly. You get to see, you know, five different angles of the car within 10 seconds or whatever it is that they're showing off to you. Um, And that's something, you know, Michael Bay brought into his style of filmmaking. He grew up in the world of making car adverts. So every time you see a car in a Michael Bay ad uh, movie, sorry, (laughs) it looks like it does in an advert because that's how he does things. Although I've heard him Um, say that's why the... um... That's why the Transformers effects are so good, according to Michael Bay, is because he's so familiar with filming cars that he's like he understands what looks real and what doesn't. <laughs> Transformers looks real. I mean, it, compared mm-hmm. to a lot of effects movies, they hold up pretty well. Yes, but lots of effect movies are terrible. Yeah. I mean, I mean, if I a car if was going to rip itself apart and stand up as a robot, I think it would look like they do in that. <laughs> Whether that means <laughs> real is a matter of debate. <laughs> oh, have, have any of you seen this? This was on the Japanese news, at least a few weeks ago, where um, they had built a moving uh, life-size Gundam Yeah, it's robot. meant to be in the Olympics opening ceremony, I think. Oh, really? Okay. I've yeah. seen the one at Odaiba, okay. but all it does is the head transforms a little bit. It doesn't, like, move, move. No, no, this one, it's on, it was like in a, it's little bay or whatever, and uh, the legs move out and all, all sort of stuff. I mean, it's still like, you know, it's not going to start running around or anything, but. Oh, it's definitely still. And then, it, then they yeah, were yeah. talking to the engineers that made it, which were just the geekiest dudes Of ever. course they were, right? <laughs> These were guys who used to build Gundam models, and somehow now it's their job to build life-size ones. Right. So anyway, they're, they're, we do want to see, uh, you know, what a realistic uh, giant robot. There you go.
Um, I, I guess we'll bring this one into the dock then with the with the enemy of the state. Now that we're we're back to Transformers for the second day in a row, but that's cool. <laughs> we like we like Transformers. I, to- I told you <laughs> when we finished yesterday. I still had more to get off my chest. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, Tom, can you tell the folks uh, what you're up to? Uh, sure, sure. I mean, I, I run a regular podcast myself. I write articles for a bunch of different places. Uh, you can find most of my work at spyculture.com. So if people want to see what I've been up to, you can go there. I have a documentary coming out sometime later this year and also a book on essentially the government role in shaping superhero movies and that whole genre. And that's hopefully coming out in the autumn or fall for American listeners. Um, so, yeah, yeah, plenty of stuff coming. And check into my site regularly if you want to know what I'm doing. I'm actually really interested to read that one because I've read your um, National Security Cinema book. And I, I am someone who's actually really annoyed with what the government has done to superhero films, turning them from, like, everyman vigilantes to soldiers. Mm. Or at least certainly a lot of superheroes oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. like Obviously that. Because, I mean, but... well, and I, I was just going to say that as the, certainly as the Marvel Universe has gone on, it has somewhat got less involved with the kind of military side of things. Mm. And some of the later movies are actually not very violent or militaristic at all and are all the better for it. Mm. So there is a spectrum there and we do try and explore that in the book. So, yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully you'll be able to get a copy when it comes out and we can talk about it. I think Luke's just got a chip on his shoulder that uh, Peter Parker's now a soldier. They they literally <laughs> put chevrons on Spider-Man's costume. <laughs> that is insulting. Yeah, he's yeah. he's he's meant to be the like working class superhero, and now he's like Iron Man's billionaire boy toy. <laughs> <laughs> Iron Man's dirty little secret. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, that's probably for another day. Um, I, I'll do the spell for Luke to, to do his thing. Podcastio, podcastium. Right. Um, Is that right? Almost. <laughs> <laughs> if you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find it on Twitter at MLSFSPod. You can also find us on Facebook, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Find us at Matt and Luke Sci-Fi Sanctuary. Give us a rating and review. Tell us you're enjoying it. Whatever. We make other podcasts. You can find all of them at patreon.com slash podcastiopodcastius. And if you are enjoying what we put out, then please consider sending us a dollar a month, because at the moment we're doing this at a loss. And if we do start getting people supporting us, and it looks like a thing, we might consider doing the Marvel movies as their own series, because that is a lot of work. And if you've enjoyed the music you've heard during this podcast, you can find more of Matt's music at rovingsagemedia.bandcamp.com. And, and if you want to be a, a, a very um, giving patron, we'll, we'll either go, well, well, you said we have to go record uh, podcast episodes in Amsterdam. <laughs> <laughs> For all the wrong reasons. Yeah. And if you Patreon me a lot of money, and I mean a lot of money, then I will read Ready Player Two. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little bit more than the where we make our own life-size Gundam, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah okay. <laughs> Okay, um, no one gets out of the sanctuary today, do they? I, I actually, I've, it's 8am in the morning, I've forgotten to do an outro. <laughs> That's fine, I don't know what I've been saying for the past hour anyway. It's cool. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll outro. You, you can't get out of the sanctuary today because we're always watching you.
Around the one hour mark in that recording, I did a lot of farts. Oh, <laughs> and I great. don't know if they yeah. came out through on the recording or not. 
you're in well on Skype you're gonna be on your own channel so I can actually lower it down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right right right. Then. <laughs> <laughs> it was like a machine gun. <laughs> I might leave them in for funsies. <laughs> if if they do come out, just isolate them and put them after this, I guess. <laughs> oh, the outtake. <laughs> Like, Tom was making, like, a very interesting, salient point, and all I could think was, like, I hope no one can hear all these farts. I didn't hear him, but I only have one headphone on, so... Right. <laughs> I, I didn't notice, I have to say, so hopefully you, you could. I was like... Well, you're busy making a good point. <laughs> I, I was almost audibly giggling at my own self doing a fart, so. If you if you were ever under the impression that you were talking to an intelligent adult, I'm afraid you are mistaken. 